welcome to episode 108 of UConn 360. That is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. It's May. It's commencement time here at UConn. And my name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator. And joining me as always is my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Tom. How are you? Good. You excited for commencement? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> We're always excited for commencement I have no here. involvement in commencement this year, so it's kind of gone under my radar, but it's always exciting. It's kind of a fun time to be here. I'm excited to have easy access to parking. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's focus on the important thing here. <laughs> no, it's super exciting. Commencement is great. That's why we're here, right? Yeah. And we, we have a we, – speaking of great things, we have a great show. We have a, a fantastic guest. I'm very excited for you to hear his insights. Most recently, in fact, as we, as, as we speak, he is getting ready to produce something for the BBC about the coronation, which is – Oh, happening as well. Yeah. yeah. So he's an expert on ritual and ritual behavior, and we'll meet him in just a bit. But we've got, we've got some UConn news. We've got some commencement facts. Commencement facts and figures. UConn 23. Hashtag UConn 23 by the numbers. Yep. This weekend, we are awarding 7,707 degrees. That's a pretty That's pretty good. good number. I like that number. 443 graduates are members of the honors program. There are 23, guess what? 23 graduates who are over seven feet tall. <laughs> that would be insane. Wouldn't it? Can you imagine what kind of... Kind 23 of what? 23 sets of twins. Wow. Graduating this wow. weekend. That is pretty, that's a large number of twins. I feel like it is. You know, I mean, maybe back in the day, people would more split up to go to different schools, but now it's like, why wouldn't we all go to UConn? Yeah. Let's all go to UConn. 55 United States military veterans. Okay. 1,491 first generation college graduates. I nice. love that. That's awesome. And 4,326 of the 7707 are from Connecticut. Very nice. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff. Good stuff. If you want to learn even more commencement facts, I recommend you visit today.uconn.edu and look for the story. It'll be pinned to the front of the, the site for this week. And it links to a commencement website that my colleagues and I built this past spring. With a lot of Yeah, with, with 27 student profiles. Wow. With there's four videos and one is really great a video it's a three generations of UConn grads oh my gosh cool in the same family yeah it's very cool so check that out gorgeous and, photos as well of all these yes. people who we profile who we profile I had nothing to do with this we in university communications profiled shout out to university photographer Sydney Hurdle for her excellent photography mm-hmm. yeah so and the only other thing I want to tell people about is if you're visiting campus this summer. Head on over to the, the Student Union Mall, the Quad, whatever you call it, and check out the new steam tree. Steam tree. Great uh, guess is what a steam tree is. Yeah, it has nothing to do with actual steam with water vapor. In fact, the term steam, I think, is it, it, we're, we're stretching the acronym to the breaking point here. It's, it's <laughs> a modified version of STEM, which, of course, stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Mathematics. And then I guess some people were like, what about art? And so now they've thrown art in there. It's it's a it's a long used acronym. I remember writing about it ten years ago, but I think it is not a commonly known acronym outside of the educational sphere. I feel like that's everything, though. Yeah, I, acronyms are like a big thing in yeah. education in general, and it's it's tough because they end up with all the same acronyms. It's true for different things. Anyway, the steam tree is super cool. Yes, it actually does blend all those disciplines together. Yes, it's a, a very elegant 
very large sculpture that looks like a tree. Uh, it's got solar panels and it has charging ports so you can charge your devices. And there's also little seats so you can sit down and you can really neat. type away on your laptop or do whatever. I don't know. It was This was part of the Kroniki Arts and Engineering Institute. Did that come out? Yes, Some I believe so, yeah. Some people involved in that. Yeah, it's, yep. it's a pretty neat blend. Also, you can't today's story about it. So. Of course there is. Uh, but it was just recently dedicated and it's pretty cool. You can't miss it. It was... Initially, the organizers said that it was going to be at Husky Memorial Park, and we were all like, where is <laughs> that? Not a thing. <laughs> so somebody went into Google Maps, apparently, and like, and wrote, like, put a pin down or whatever, and yeah. wrote Husky Memorial Park as this part Student of the quad. quad. yeah. It's it's not, not, that's not what it's called. No, we, we had to report that to Google. Stop trying to make fetch happen. <laughs> Hey, um, good reference. Thank you. You had to sit down with our next guest by yourself because I was sick. I did. And, uh, you know, my deficiencies as an interviewer are on full display, <laughs> but uh, let's, let's meet him. Dimitris Zigalatas is an anthropologist and cognitive scientist who studies some of the more peculiar aspects of what it means to be human, ritual, music, sports fandom, and other things that help people connect with each other and make sense of their lives. His research combines experimental methods with ethnographic fieldwork to provide a holistic understanding of human culture, and he has spent several years conducting research in Southern Europe and Mauritius. He is an associate professor in anthropology and psychological sciences at UConn and the head of the Experimental Anthropology Lab. He has also served as president of the International Association for the Cognitive and Evolutionary Sciences of Religion. His most recent book is Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living, which is available wherever you can get books. And in fact, I gave it to my brother as a Christmas present. We've been trying to make this interview happen for a little while, and we're thrilled it's happening now. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Tom. I guess the first question is maybe the obvious one. How did you become interested in, in the study of ritual? My interest in ritual goes back all the way to my childhood. I, I guess what sparked my interest on, on ritual was the what I describe in my book as the ritual paradox. Rituals seem to be very meaningful for, for people around the world. And yet when you ask them to, to explain why, we tend to have a hard time explaining why. We just... We'll say things, well, that's what we do. That's that's who we are. And growing up in, I, I grew up in Greece at a time before the internet was widely available or available at all. And there was no cable television at the time. My introduction to, to anthropology was through National Geographic magazine. I would go and buy it once a month. And there I would... I would be impressed by all of those seemingly exotic rituals that happen in, in different parts of the world, initiation ceremonies in, in Africa and Sufi dances in the, in the Middle East and painful ceremonies in the in the Amazonia. And in my mind, those were always very distant. Those were sort of relics that were distant in both in space and in time. And when I realized that people in my own culture performed similar and, and, and all kinds of other rituals, things like far walking ceremonies that were happening a few miles away from, from the city where I grew up and painful pilgrimages on Greek islands. That to me was a revelation. So that got me thinking, why is it that people in all cultures have those behaviors that to outsiders, they might seem utterly pointless? Yeah. And, and you touched on a little bit there. One of the things you focus on in particular called extreme rituals. Could you tell us about what that term means in this context? Yes, the way in which I use this term is certainly there's no claim about people involved in these rituals being deviant in any sort of sense. In fact, in all the contexts where I've studied those rituals, we see people from all walks of life 
performing them from illiterate farmers to college students and medical doctors. What I mean by extreme is that if you were to, to plot somehow the amount of effort it takes to perform certain rituals, these would be outliers. So we're talking about rituals like walking on burning embers, about piercing the body with needles and hooks and skewers, about self-flagellation, about jumping from tall towers uh, with nothing but vines tied around your ankles. So they may involve a lot of pain, they may involve high risks, they may involve a lot of effort and a lot of suffering. And I think a lot of Americans, kind of how you were describing when you were growing up, would think when they hear the term ritual, they think it belongs to another place or you know a, a small religious group or something. But in fact, you've demonstrated that ritual is a common feature of everyday life. So what are some rituals that people might not think of in that context, but in fact are things that happen every day or more commonly? Yeah, so you're right. Sometimes when I ask UConn students, do you regularly perform any type of ritual? They Many of them say no. And then we get into a discussion of what it is that we mean by ritual. And by the end of the discussion, they realize that we all perform rituals all the time. So the definition of ritual is something that is um, regularly performed and yet either has no specific goal or when it does, there is no connection between the means that we undertake and the and the goals that are supposed to achieve. So if I perform a rain dance, there's no connection between my moving about and water falling from the sky. And when you begin to see it from this perspective, you will realize that we all have tons of rituals that we perform. We meet other people and we shake hands. We get together and we raise our glasses to make a toast. We attend birthday parties and college graduations and weddings and funerals and baptisms. And we we dance in the in a dance floor. We take part in things like concerts or or Burning Man or rallies and parades. So ritual really is everywhere. It is formalized through our institutions. When a judge waves a gavel or when we stand up in front of the judge and, and take an oath, all of those situations, that's that's all ritual. So the human need for ritual is a constant. What changes are the forms. Perhaps today in our society, which is becoming more and more secularized, we might get the impression that there are fewer rituals, but that's only because we're thinking of those rituals that pertain to organized religion. When we start to really think about what it is that we mean by ritual, then we see it everywhere. And given that it's so common, this need seems to be so common, there must be something that people get out of it. What are some of the benefits that people get from participating in rituals? So this is basically what I've spent my entire academic life investigating. Since I was a student for over two decades now, I've been combining methods from anthropology, including ethnographic fieldwork. I've spent four years living in, in different contexts, conducting participant observation. And I've also directed two research laboratories. So I, I combine these methods from ethnography and the experimental sciences to figure this out. And what I've learned is that these rituals, they might seem pointless, but they fulfill very important functions for individuals and for societies. We know, for example, that at the individual level, rituals help people soothe their anxieties. We know this from anthropological observations, so what anthropologists have interpreted their findings to mean. We know this from phenomenology, which is people's own lived experience, what they say they feel, but we also know it from experimental evidence. For example, we use heart rate monitors and we use electrodermal activity monitors and cortisol measurements and we do that in the in the context of everyday rituals we've done this on campus 
at UConn, and we've done this in Mauritius, and we've done this elsewhere, and we see that when people go to to a temple or when they perform sort of decontextualized rituals, even in the context of a lab, this helps them reduce anxiety. And that happens both at the perceived level, so they feel less stressed, but also the physiological level. We can measure it in their bodies that they are less stressed. Now, at the collective level, rituals serve functions like bringing, they, they help bring people together. And this is something we viscerally feel. And again, anthropologists have observed this. People will say this sometimes in the kinds of rituals that I study. They say we, we go through this together and we feel like brothers. We're all like one. And this is something that we can measure. For example, we look at their physiological responses and we see that we can measure emotional reactions that get synchronized. So they feel like one. We also look at their behavior and we see that after taking part in those collective rituals, people don't just feel closer to each other, but they also become more generous towards one another and more trusting. And we can measure this using things like economic experiments when they're asked to, to decide how much money to, to give to somebody else. We know that their social networks begin to, to strengthen. After taking part in those rituals, their status increases within the community, and they're better able to, to build links with other members of the community. So these benefits are multifaceted. As we're talking, it's just a little over a week since the UConn men's basketball team won a national championship. And during the NCAA tournament, the head coach, Dan Hurley, said that he wore the same pair of underwear for every game. So that's that's a, a personal ritual or superstition. And I was wondering, is that a personal sort of superstition, you might call it? Does that come from the same place, psychologically speaking, as a collective ritual, the desire to participate collectively? Or can you make a distinction between something that people do that's just individual to them and something that's more of a social participation? So I think that these individual functions of, of ritual are, are very important for people to to be attracted to ritual in the first place. Ritual wouldn't be able to have these collective level effects if it wasn't appealing to individuals to begin with. And sports are a very good example. Anthropologists have noticed both qualitatively and in quantitative studies that in contexts that involve a lot of stress and high stakes, people spontaneously engage in more rituals. So if you wanted to observe these types of things that we might call superstition. I'm not very fond of this word because it typically it means whatever the religious establishment does not approve. But we do have understanding of what we mean. There's these individual kinds of, of rituals. If you want to observe them spontaneously, then the best places to do that would be a sports stadium or a casino or a hospital or perhaps a war zone or after some natural disaster. And this is because there's very high uncertainty in those situations. And by enacting those rituals that, that we have performed again and again and again, when we know exactly what we're going to do and exactly the way in which we're going to do it, that gives us a sense of control that alleviates that sense of uncertainty because now we're able to act in very predictable ways. Unpredictability is very stressful to us. It's stressful for our, for our brain. So athletes are very famous with their rituals and there are all sorts of interesting studies we have done studies at the University of Connecticut where we see that people actually have intuitions that these rituals work. We show them videos of players, NCAA players, shooting free throws. And in one condition, they perform some pre-shot ritual, kissing the ball, spinning the ball, etc. And in the other condition, they don't. And then we ask them to predict the outcome of that shot, which they don't see. And people feel 
that that shot, the ritualized shot, will be more successful, 30% more of the time, when in fact, the, the outcome is always the, the same. Those are always successful shots. Now, athletes do have those kinds of intuitions, even if they're not fully aware of it. But studies show that athletes that perform these pregame rituals, they actually perform better. And this does not happen through some kind of magical causation. This, when we look into the mediating factors, we see that it's the boost in confidence that creates these effects. And if you disrupt their rituals, you throw them off their game, then they, they perform worse. In the other studies show that elite athletes have more rituals, not fewer ones. You might think, well, if you're a better athlete, you, you can rely less on ritual and more on your personal skill. But in fact, because elite athletes compete for higher stakes and they face better opponents, they have greater stress levels, they perform more rituals. So if you look at people like Rafa Nadal, the, the tennis player, who, he has a, a very elaborate sequence of rituals that he always performs. If you look at LeBron James, he always starts a game with this ritual of throwing chalk in, in the air and so on and so forth. Elite athletes are full of rituals. And we know from all these studies that these rituals actually help them. That's fascinating. And I'm really glad you brought up the point about the word superstition because it's always used in terms of irrational belief. But it, it seems to me that if doing things like this reduces your stress, brings you a sense of confidence, it's not really irrational behavior, right? I mean, like there's there's a reason people do it. Exactly. So maybe rational versus irrational is not the right way of framing it. Maybe we should speak of direct versus indirect benefits. And and when we start thinking of it, of it in this way. So the fact that ritual does not have any direct causal influence on the world does not mean that it doesn't have any impact at all. In fact, it has very important and for that matter, measurable effects on, on the world. So the fact that it allows us to take this mental shortcut might even make it more efficient than some directly utilitarian actions. So if I'm suffering from anxiety, I can think of all kinds of ways of of dealing with anxiety, like going to therapy, for example, or or all sorts of ways that, that involve modifying my behavior in the long run. But those, of course, take time. But if I have a familiar ritual that would help me soothe my anxiety, uh, even if temporarily, that can be very useful. So that can be seen as a, as a mental technology or a mental shortcut, so to speak. Could you talk a bit about your book? By the way, my brother really liked it. He enjoyed it. So what when people pick up your book, what are they going to learn? So the key message in this book is that Ritual is a true human universal. Every society we've ever known has had rituals. And that sometimes the kinds of things that might seem pointless at first glance, they're the very things that make us human. Those are things like art and music and dancing and, of course, ritual. Those are really the things that, that make our life meaningful. So this book explains how this happens, and, and it tries to, to make that argument on the basis of two decades of research that involves both talking to thousands of ritual practitioners, living with different local communities, and conducting a series of scientific experiments. Right, the question that I'm sure you get asked all the time is, do you have any rituals that you like to participate in, whether collectively or individually? Is there anything you like to do? So I started this this journey through ritual as a skeptic, and I was, in fact, often very hostile towards some of the rituals that growing up in Greece were imposed on me. So at school, it was mandatory to go through morning prayer, for example, or we had to do these student parades twice a year. So I was, uh, me like most of my fellow students, were trying to get away from, from these things because they were imposed on us. 
But through my studies of ritual, I discovered that A, I do have rituals of my own, and B, I discovered that these things can be very meaningful. And another event that in my life that, that helped me embrace ritual more was the birth of my son. He's now three years old. So when he was born, we realized that, that it is very important for him to, to grow up having these family traditions. Things like, for example, we didn't used to have a Christmas tree uh, during the, the holiday period. And now we do because we want him to grow up having these memories. There are studies that show that children who take part in more family rituals are better adjusted. And of course, it's hard to, to distinguish cause and effect here. But there's all sorts of research that suggests that taking part in, in family rituals helps establish bonds. It helps create very important memories in the sense of our autobiographical identity of who we are as a person. So we are now much more conscious about embracing those types of rituals. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I guess the last question, that something you said made me think of this. I guess there are ways that rituals can be formally imposed, like you talked about the morning prayer or in American schools, it's the Pledge of Allegiance. And then there are rituals that seem to be more organic, so to speak, you know, sports fans, things like that, collective celebrations. Is one stronger than another? I mean, is there one that that seems to last more or have more effect on people, the, the one with the official sanction as opposed to the one that seems to just kind of come about more spontaneously? So in a sense, what is going to happen from an evolutionary perspective, and I'm not talking about biological evolution here, I'm talking about cultural selection, which operates on exactly the same principles, except not at the level of, of the gene. But what we will see is that every day there are thousands of rituals that are being created. Most of these rituals will not spread because they don't fulfill those functions in the same way. They're not as efficient. So whether a ritual has emerged spontaneously in a particular community, or there's an attempt to engineer it from the top down, if it really doesn't work for that community, it will just not spread and, and not thrive. Come back years or decades or centuries later, and, and you will find that it is only the ones that are truly successful that will be around. This has been really fascinating. Where can people find more of, of your work or find more of you online if they're so inclined? So... I am lucky in having a, an extremely rare last name. The downside is that it's impossible for anybody in the United States to pronounce. But the upside of this is that I I have the domain. So it's my last name.com, zigalatas.com. And, and there you will find links to pretty much everything I've, I've written for a popular audience, including my book. Perfect. All right. Well, Professor, thank you so much for your time and enjoy the rest of the semester. You too. It's my pleasure. That was great, Tom. That was very interesting. And uh, yeah, check out his book. And he's a media star. He's frequently in the media doing things like the aforementioned BBC thing about the coronation. So always really interesting stuff. Speaking of ritual. <gasps> speaking of ritual. Wait, what did, what did our friend Steve call Tom's history? He called it something funny last time in his email that he sent us. Our friend Stephen Winchell called it Tom's history phone booth, which I found as a good one. Better than, I don't know, you kept saying bookshelf or something. Well, how about this one? I don't have one. I have a few. So you might call them Tom's History Nuggets. Nuggets? Or Tom's okay. History Bagatelles, maybe. <laughs> bagatelle? I don't like, know. A, like a baguette? I don't know. I actually like don't know. I've just, tiny baguette? I've just seen it in print. I don't even know what it is. never heard of that. But I have a few neat things. And one of them, this is kind of a, this is like a trivia question. You've often heard UConn called Connecticut's flagship public university. Mm-hmm. When did we officially become Ooh. the flagship public university? I mean, I guess that it was sometime in the 1950s, is my guess. That's probably way too late. It was exactly 
November the 19th, 1987. Holy cow, really? I didn't even, I always thought it was just like a generic nickname, but no. In November the 19th, 1987, there was a board of trustees meeting. The board of trustees made it official by adopting a new, as required by the State Department of Education, adopted a new, essentially, a role and scope statement. So it's kind of like a mission statement. Uh-huh. And under that, the role of the University of Connecticut is that of the flagship institution of the public higher education system and combines the roles of the land-grant and public research university with its fundamental functions of instruction and service. So sort of at the direction of the state, we became the flagship university. I would have, I mean, I would have assumed that it had something to do with state legislation, but I would have thought that it was long before 1987, like back when, you know, everyone could kind of come here for an affordable amount. Yeah. <laughs> then it would be, be part of our role, like the, the role of, you know, educating the state's people. That's surprising. Yeah, I, that's a little, little nugget, little nugget, little bag of tell. Maybe. I hope Bagatelle doesn't mean something bad. Like, Do I hope you I really don't... not know what it means? You I don't know, know what it means. You know so many things. I don't know what it means. <laughs> you shouldn't say words. <laughs> you don't know what they mean. I assume it's fine. Bagatelle number two. Bagatelle number two. I was looking through old issues of The Advance, which was kind of the, the print forerunner of UConn Today. It was mm-hmm. the official institutional news source. And I was kind of curious, 35 years ago, this spring... The UConn men's basketball team won the NIT tournament. I know. I was a little baby. A little Um, little baby then. And so I kind of thought like, oh, I wonder how that was – because we did a big thing about it for UConn Today. And I thought, well, I wonder wonder how they handled it back then. Oh, no. So the first edition of the advance after they won the championship, there was no story. (laughs) And the front page (laughs) – the, f- the front page was a story about an increase in federal postal rates <laughs> and how much it was going to cost UConn. <laughs> like, I question the editorial judgment of my forebears oh, a little bit there. Yeah. But they did have a photo inside of – but again, the all right, I don't want to badmouth people. But like the no. photo was the Capitol lobby, you know, because the team went to the state Capitol to right. be – but it's just kind of like people milling around. Huh. I don't know. Yeah. I hope that was pre-Peter Moranis, pre-our entire Hindsight photo staff. is 2020. Yeah. And my last bagatelle <laughs> is a shout out to chemistry lecturer emeritus Art Dimock because there was a fun little story about him in 1987. Apparently, UConn Gives is the, the annual sort of major day of philanthropy mm-hmm. effort. Uh, and I guess they had a similar version of this back in the 80s, but it was called the Combined Appeal Campaign. <laughs> catchy. Very catchy. <laughs> this is pre-marketing, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> And one of the things that they did, though, is if you were a faculty or staff and you donated to this campaign, you were entered in a raffle to win a bunch of prizes. And the number one prize that everyone wanted was a year-long reserved parking space. I was going to say. That was the first thing that came to my mind. And he he won it, and he got it very close to the Waring Chemistry Building, which is today the Philip Austin Building. Some of you may know it as the CLAS Building. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, this advance says, when Dimock first told his coworkers he had won the prize, he received several <laughs> entreaties from coworkers offering to buy the space. <laughs> but he says, some things are worth more than money, and he refused the offers. And there's a very funny picture, which I'll, I'll put on Twitter. It's uh, he's he's lounging in a like a like a, a some like an yeah. outdoor fern, lawn furniture in yeah. his parking space. Oh my god, I love it! I would yeah. do that. I would never sell a prime parking space. No, I would love a reserved parking space. It's like, but that's like a lotto ticket. Like you don't want to tell people it's yours. I know. Oh my god. I know. It's pretty funny. I thought these bagatelles were going to have to do with commencement, but they were just whatever struck your fancy. Yeah, they're just whatever struck your fancy. Because <laughs> like, I feel like we've every every we've May, about commencement a lot, like I, I, I always talk about like the grove of trees and blah blah blah, and everybody yeah. knows. Everybody knows because you've been listening to us religiously. Because everybody knows, and they take notes yeah. and they discuss our podcast, and there's Reddit communities. There are, there are yeah, it's like book club. Yeah, UConn three sixty club. Kind of like a cult. It's a little dangerous. Stephen Wendell's the only member. Well, but we appreciate it. <laughs>
I, I'm still convinced I told him and he didn't respond to this this particular sentence in my email, but I told him I think it's a long con. I think he's just trying to make us feel good about ourselves. You know, if it is a long bit, he's he's been in it's five it's years been a long now. Time, I know. Yeah, and he's had to listen to all of our episodes. So yeah, yeah, he does. I mean he pulls specifics. He 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 does listen to us. Thank you, Stephen. Thank we you, Stephen. Appreciate you. Yeah. Shout out to Stephen Winchell. Yeah. Cool. All right, so that's it for this week. We'll be back. We've got more stuff coming up. We're not going away for the summer. Nope, we're not. We're going to maintain our our, 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 monthly our, our very rigorous production schedule. <laughs> it seems to be working just yeah, fine, it's fine for everyone involved. Yeah. All right, so if you want to you want to find us online, you can follow me on Twitter at TJ Breen, at UConn Podcast, mm-hmm. at Julie Bartuka, mm-hmm. today.uconn.edu. Yep. Anything else? Magazine.uconn.edu. We'll have a new issue. Soon. Soon. Going to be some good stuff Exciting in there. Exciting stuff in there. Let's check your mailboxes in June. Some some of Tom's trivia bagatelles will be in there. Heck yeah. God, I hope that's not something bad. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Do you actually not know what that means? I looked it up. It, it actually it means like a... Kind of what I thought it meant. (laughs) Like a nugget. A, A thing of little importance, a very easy task. Perfect.